Life is complex. Join us for the simple gifts of wisdom, love, and delight in the written word. Surprised by Joy, The Shape of My Early Life by C.S. Lewis Chapter 14, Checkmate Part 2 The next move was intellectual and consolidated the first move. I read in Alexander's Space, Time, and Deity his theory of enjoyment and contemplation. These are technical terms in Alexander's philosophy. Enjoyment has nothing to do with pleasure, nor contemplation with the contemplative life. When you see a table, you enjoy the act of seeing and contemplate the table. Later, if you took up optics and thought about seeing itself, you would be contemplating the seeing and enjoying the thought. In bereavement, you contemplate the beloved and the beloved's death, and, in Alexander's sense, enjoy the loneliness and grief. But a psychologist, if he were considering you as a case of melancholia, would be contemplating your grief and enjoying psychology. We do not think a thought in the same sense in which we think that Herodotus is unreliable. When we think a thought, thought is a cognate accusative, like blow in strike a blow. We enjoy the thought that Herodotus is unreliable, and, in so doing, contemplate the unreliability of Herodotus. I accepted this distinction at once, and have ever since regarded it as an indispensable tool of thought. A moment later, its consequences, for me quite catastrophic, began to appear. It seemed to me self-evident that one essential property of love, hate, fear, hope, or desire was attention to their object. To cease thinking about or attending to the woman is, so far, to cease loving. To cease thinking about or attending to the dreaded thing is, so far, to cease being afraid. But to attend to your own love or fear is to cease attending to the loved or dreaded object. In other words, the enjoyment and the contemplation of our inner activities are incompatible. You cannot hope and also think about hoping at the same moment. For in hope, we look to hope's object, and we interrupt this by, so to speak, turning round to look at the hope itself. Of course, the two activities can and do alternate with great rapidity, but they are distinct and incompatible. This was not merely a logical result of Alexander's analysis, but could be verified in daily and hourly experience. The surest means of disarming an anger, or a lust, was to turn your attention from the girl or the insult and start examining the passion itself. The surest way of spoiling a pleasure was to start examining your satisfaction. But if so, it followed that all introspection is in one respect misleading. In introspection, we try to look inside ourselves and see what is going on. But nearly everything that was going on a moment before is stopped by the very act of our turning to look at it. Unfortunately, this does not mean that introspection finds nothing. On the contrary, it finds precisely what is left behind by the suspension of all our normal activities. And what is left behind is mainly mental images and physical sensations. 
The great error is to mistake this mere sediment, or track, or byproduct, for the activities themselves. That is how men may come to believe that thought is only unspoken words, or the appreciation of poetry only a collection of mental pictures, when these, in reality, are what the thought or the appreciation, when interrupted, leave behind, like the swell at sea, working after the wind has dropped. Not, of course, that these activities, before we stop them by introspection, were unconscious. We do not love, fear, or think without knowing it. Instead of the twofold division into conscious and unconscious, we need a threefold division the unconscious, the enjoyed, and the contemplated. This discovery flashed a new light back on my whole life. I saw that all my wantings and watchings for joy, all my vain hopes to find some mental content on which I could, so to speak, lay my finger and say, this is it, had been a futile attempt to contemplate the enjoyed. All that such watching and waiting ever could find would be either an image, Asgard, the Western Garden, or what not, or a quiver in the diaphragm. I should never have to bother again about these images or sensations. I knew now that they were merely the mental track left by the passage of joy. Not the wave, but the wave's imprint on the sand. The inherent dialectic of desire itself had, in a way, already shown me this. For all images and sensations, if idolatrously mistaken for joy itself, soon honestly confessed themselves inadequate. All said, in the last resort, it is not I. I am only a reminder. Look, look, what do I remind you of? So far, so good. But it is at the next step that all overtakes me. There was no doubt that joy was a desire, and, insofar as it was also simultaneously a good, it was also a kind of love. But a desire is turned not to itself, but to its object. Not only that, but it owes all its character to its object. Erotic love is not like desire for food. Nay, a love for one woman differs from a love for another woman in the very same way, and the very same degree, as the two women differ from one another. Even our desire for one wine differs in tone from our desire for another. Our intellectual desire, curiosity, to know the true answer to a question is quite different from our desire to find that one answer, rather than another, is true. The form of the desired is in the desire. It is the object which makes the desire harsh or sweet, coarse or choice, high or low. It is the object that makes the desire itself desirable or hateful. I perceived, and this was a wonder of wonders, that just as I had been wrong in supposing that I really desired the garden of the Hesperides, so also I had been equally wrong in supposing that I desired joy itself. Joy itself, considered simply as an event in my own mind, turned out to be of no value at all. All the value lay in that of which joy was the desiring, and that object, quite clearly, was no state of my own mind or body at all. 
in a way. I had proved this by elimination. I had tried everything in my own mind and body, as it were, asking myself, is it this you want? Is it this? Last of all, I had asked if joy itself was what I wanted, and labeling it aesthetic experience had pretended I could answer yes. But that answer, too, had broken down. Inexorably, joy proclaimed, You want, I myself am your want of, something other, outside, not you or any state of you. I did not yet ask, Who is the desired? Only, what is it? But this brought me already into the region of awe, for I thus understood that in deepest solitude there is a road right out of the self, a commerce with something which, by refusing to identify itself with any object of the senses, or anything whereof we have biological or social need, or anything imagined, or any state of our own minds, proclaims itself sheerly objective far more objective than bodies, for it is not, like them, clothed in our senses. The naked other, imageless, though our imagination salutes it with a hundred images, unknown, undefined, desired. That was the second move, equivalent, perhaps, to the loss of one's last remaining bishop. The third move did not seem to me dangerous at the time. It consisted merely in linking up this new eclairissement about joy with my idealistic philosophy. I saw that joy, as I now understood it, would fit in. We mortals, seen as the sciences see us and as we commonly see one another, are mere appearances. But appearances of the absolute insofar as we really are at all, which isn't saying much, we have, so to speak, a root in the absolute, which is the utter reality. And that is why we experience joy. We yearn, rightly, for that unity which we can never reach except by ceasing to be the separate phenomenal beings called we. Joy was not a deception. Its visitations were rather the moments of clearest consciousness we had. When we became aware of our fragmentary and phantasmal nature and ached for that impossible reunion which would annihilate us, or that self-contradictory waking which would reveal not that we had had, but that we were a dream. This seemed quite satisfactory intellectually even emotionally, too, for it matters more that heaven should exist than that we should ever get there. What I did not notice was that I had passed an important milestone. Up till now, my thoughts had been centrifugal. Now, the centripetal movement had begun. Considerations arising from quite different parts of my experience were beginning to come together with a click. This new dovetailing of my desire life with my philosophy foreshadowed the day, now fast approaching, when I should be forced to take my philosophy more seriously than I ever intended. I did not foresee this. I was like a man who was lost merely a pawn and never dreams that this, in that state of the game, means mate in a few moves. The fourth move was more alarming. I was now teaching philosophy, 
I suspect, very badly, as well as English. And my watered Hegelianism wouldn't serve for tutorial purposes. A tutor must make things clear. Now, the absolute cannot be made clear. Do you mean nobody knows what? Or do you mean a superhuman mind and therefore, we may as well admit, a person? After all, did Hegel and Bradley and all the rest of them ever do more than add mystifications to the simple, workable, theistic idealism of Barclay? I thought not. And didn't Barclay's God do all the same work as the Absolute, with the added advantage that we had at least some notion of what we meant by him? I thought he did. So, I was driven back into something like Barclayanism but Barclayanism with a few top dressings of my own. I distinguished this philosophical god very sharply, or so I said, from the god of popular religion. There was, I explained, no possibility of being in a personal relation with him, for I thought he projected us as a dramatist projects his characters, and I could no more meet him than Hamlet could meet Shakespeare. I didn't call him god either. I called him spirit. One fights for one's remaining comforts. Then I read Chesterton's Everlasting Man, and for the first time saw the whole Christian outline of history set out in a form that seemed to me to make sense. Somehow I contrived not to be too badly shaken. You will remember that I already thought Chesterton the most sensible man alive, apart from his Christianity. Now, I veritably believe, I thought, I didn't, of course, say, words would have revealed the nonsense, that Christianity itself was very sensible, apart from its Christianity. But I hardly remember, for I had not long finished The Everlasting Man when something far more alarming happened to me. Early in 1926, the hardest-boiled of all the atheists I ever knew sat in my room on the other side of the fire and remarked that the evidence for the historicity of the Gospels was really surprisingly good. Rum thing, he went on. All that stuff of Fraser's about the dying God. Rum thing. It almost looks as if it had really happened once. To understand the shattering impact of it, you would need to know the man who has certainly never since shown any interest in Christianity. If he, the cynic of cynics, the toughest of the toughs, were not, as I would still have put it, safe, where could I turn? Was there then no escape? Tis the gift to be simple. Tis the gift to be free. Tis the gift to come down where we ought to be. And when we find ourselves in the place just right, t'will be in the valley of love and delight. When true simplicity is gained, to bow and to bend, we will not be ashamed. To turn, turn, will be our delight, till by turning, turning, we come round right. <laughs>